0: Miss the show, no worries, on point, and on this podcast, is mania or panic leading the decision-making in this country? We're going to talk to someone who's already called for the firings of Dr. Kieran Moore and most of the province's medical officers of health, and now he's got his sights set on Dr. Tam, who he feels is making decisions when it comes to children based on mania, and no questions are asked about it. So we'll talk about why he feels she should be fired and replaced with someone who can show real leadership. We'll talk about how the Bank of Canada got it so wrong and what the real story is when it comes to inflation. Like, how high is it going to go? How long will this last? And are we ever going to get clarity we need so that Canadians can feel confident someone in Ottawa is in charge and has some kind of plan to get everyday Canadians through this? We'll talk with a man you know well on this show, Philip Cross, who writes a report warning, buckle up. And it's been called the trial of the decade with a dead pedophile's girlfriend now on trial fighting for her life. Question everyone wants to know, will Ghislaine Maxwell name the names of the rich and powerful men who are alleged to have been handed many underage girls for their own kinky pleasure? let us get talking.
1: This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. As you realize, this is a rapidly changing
0: environment. Uh, lots of questions yet uh, about this new strain that we have to have answers for. We need to understand, really, uh, if this is a virulent infection, if it makes people significantly sick or leads them to hospitalization. We really don't have that information yet. So what do we learn about Omicron? Very little, other than everyone needs to calm down until we get the facts in. Good evening. Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, November 29th. Here we go into a fresh new week, sliding into this very chilly week at that, and already the insanity underway. Oh yes, the breathless reporting of this new variant. And I will talk about it, but when I say talk, this will not in any way be the focus of the show. And I look at it like that because if I'm exhausted by the never-ending hamster wheel of COVID hysteria, then I know for guaranteed fact that you are too. Because I feel like this virus has, you know, in many ways turned into like pandemic porn. Where every headline we read on every new development becomes this narrative that the sky is falling and then it consumes the news cycle 24 days and 7 days and every minute of the day. And then everyone gets into a panic. You know, on Friday the markets were tanking. The talk turned to the need for shutdowns. We don't even know what we're dealing with. So can everyone just kind of calm down? I mean, I listened to Dr. Moore this morning in his press conference, and my big takeaway, and I think what the takeaway should be, is this. The experts don't know. They don't know how dangerous this variant is or if it's dangerous. They don't know if we'll need another vaccine booster or if the new strain's Vaccine-resistant. They don't know if it spreads any faster than any other variant that's coming along or not. Right now, uh, South Africa does not have near the vaccine rate that we do in this country, and cases are going up there, but they are all being recorded. And I went through to see, like, what's their hospitalization, what are the IC Cases that they're recording right now are said to be, quote, extremely mild in the unvaccinated. That does not mean we should not be concerned, that we should not take precautions. Yes, it's a good idea to restrict some travel, but people can be proactive about it, you know, wash their hands more, maybe limit some social activities that's indoors. But always this immediate reaction to rush to draconian measures of lockdowns and upending that normal is, is just nutty to me, especially when we all know So far that there are a handful of confirmed cases in this country. And of course, over the weekend, I'm reading Dr. Fauci lead the panic. And he declared, America will have to be prepared to do anything and everything to fight the virus. That could include more lockdowns. And then in the very next sentence, Fauci says, it's just, it's too early to say. Okay, then don't say that. Why needlessly panic people who are completely exhausted and burnt out? You don't need to. Get the facts first. I mean, we've had almost 100 variants of this virus since the coronavirus came into our lives. And every time, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we're told, ooh, this latest variant, it's the big one, it's the big threat. And none have turned out to be that. And unlike the early days, we are in a much, much different scenario in this country. First of all, we know a lot more about how to deal with this virus. We know know a lot more about the variants than we did before. We are vaccinated. We can get boosters, as they're doing right now in the United States. But one thing we also know, or we ought to know, is that restrictions and lockdowns are not going to get us out of this thing. And yet, for whatever reason, there are big, big parts of the population in this country that still largely support harsh measures. And I don't know if you recall this, but... Polling done by Ipsos back in September for Global revealed at that time 63 percent, 63 percent of this country, of Canadians, still support lockdowns to deal with the wave four. And specific, they were talking about the Delta variant. Okay, well, the Delta variant has not come anywhere close to delivering the death and destruction federal and provincial and municipal modeling suggested we see. There were none of these dark days where Dr. DeVilla had to come out and say, This is the most scared I've ever been. I mean, it didn't come anywhere near. In Ontario, fourth wave modeling suggested we could exceed 9,000 cases sometime in October. We got nowhere near that number. Not even close. In October, I think we had like 430 cases. And yes, Cases are now trending upwards. We're at 1,000 cases. Well, we knew this was going to happen because guess what happens in the winter? People go inside. All we know right now in this province, to be fact, is our ICUs can handle what we've got. They're not filling up, and we are doing pretty well with restrictions and what we've got in place. And, And look, this variant could very well be more serious. But so far, the only thing I think it proves to us is that the pandemic's not running out of steam. But we just can't ignore how destructive lockdowns have been to society at large, to our kids who are just getting their lives back, albeit still in a very weird, weird world. We've got the elderly finally allowed basic human contact. Our economy is teetering right now we can't afford another lockdown. (laughs) So why get all alarmist now until we figure out what we're dealing with? Because I'm beginning to think, and I've actually been thinking this for quite a while, that there are many out there who never want this thing to end. They seem addicted to this notion that we have to get to zero cases before we can get on with our life. And sorry, that's not happening. COVID is never not going to be a thing. It's here. We missed that opportunity a long time ago. So we have to chill out and start rolling with the punches instead of instantly jumping to this need for damaging measures like talking about school closures. I mean, the time for the kind of panic we're seeing now where we get all these proactive measures, that's what we needed back in December of 2019 when we were watching China stew in this virus and then, of course, lying to the world. I mean, back then, those in charge, all they cared about was hurting people's feelings. They didn't worry about getting ahead of a threat. Or making sure we were, you know, actually prepared, maybe get some of the frontline workers some masks so they didn't have to wear the same one for three weeks. But sadly, back then, as we know, the government moved too slow. And now the reaction every time we get a new unknown COVID variant, this automatic position of restrictions by all politicians who are now worried that they're going to get caught flat footed again. And you just think, you know, can you imagine where we might be today if the Trudeau government had moved as quickly to impose travel restrictions on China as it has now slapped on South Africa? Boy, oh boy. So I'm pretty relieved to see Dr. Moore deliver what seems to me a sensible and measured kind of wait-and-see approach to a possible threat. I think it's how we should be treating the waves that we were warned were going to be continuing to come. And if 63% of Canadians want to lock their lives down... You can. No one's stopping you. You can restrict your life as much as you want. You can lock yourself in the house. You can bubble wrap yourself. Whatever. Have at her. But there is a lot of mileage left in this crisis. So we need to stop with the knee-jerk reactions and learn to live with this and keep as much normal as we can for as long as we can. Not just for the kids' well-being, but for our well-being at large, our sanity, which is being damaged by far more than just this virus. So let's stop assuming the worst. I mean, I think it's long past due to stop normalizing what is not normal. It is not normal to live our lives in bubble wrap. Because this threat, and there'll be another, and another, and another. I think if everyone takes a step and a breath, we'll get through it. Otherwise, it's going to be a very, very insufferable winter. Whew, oh boy. So, you know, a lot of kids' parents very excited getting uh, rushed off to the pharmacy and getting shots into kids in this mass vaccination campaign across the country. And my next guest says, you know, enough with the mania of vaccines that it's time for better leadership and debate on who actually needs them. And uh, the reality is we have no long-term data when it comes to kids and these vaccines or even data to back up the actual need for kids to be getting them. And yet now... Dr. Tam's calling for toddlers and babies to get shots. And she calls it a turning point of this pandemic. Um, Given the hesitancy, and there are many, many parents who are hesitant, they just don't talk about it, but they're hesitant about putting it into their kids 5 to 11. I mean, can you imagine the hesitancy parents will feel about putting a rather unknown vaccine into babies? I am in no way an anti-vaxxer. I am fully vaccinated. But I find it bizarre to be rushing something like this into toddlers, especially when we do know that the vaccines we're using lose efficacy after a certain point of time. So, you know, if children are not getting severely ill with this virus and we have no data reporting children dying, why, with so many unknowns, would we not be questioning Dr. Tam on the need to rush vaccines into Really, really young kids. Irvin, students, president of the Institute for 21st Century Questions, editor-in-chief and publisher of Global Brief Magazine, and chair of the Worldwide Commission to Educate All Kids Post-Pandemic, his latest book, Canada Must Think for Itself, Ten Thesis for a country Survival and Success This Century. Good to have you, Irvin. Thanks for having me back, Alex. You have penned a number of articles of late demanding that those in charge be called to account. So you... Put your target uh, and focus on uh, Dr. Karen Moore, uh, the chief medical officer of health, the medical officers of health across this province. And now you are, are you know, targeting or, or looking at that Dr. Tam because you you see this as mania that is preventing kind of common sense leadership.
2: That's right. First of all, my, my critiques are never personal, even though I put her name. Um, By necessity, because we've got to that point in the mania, the critique is never personal, strictly professional and policy oriented. So Mm -hmm. I started with the medical officers of health for going above and beyond in the context of the mania at local levels, imposing huge strictures on kids, on businesses, well beyond the reasonable, well beyond what was the the guidance provided for by by Ontario. Then I, 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 I demanded the resignation of Kieran Moore for overseeing the entire edifice of mania within Ontario. And now at the national level, where the mania continues, I'm also not anti-vax at all. I led the first major vaccine summit in the country, bringing together experts from around the world. What we do not do well in Canada is not just not vaccinate. we, we, We vaccinate with mania. So the mania is an energy that's released alongside of the vaccination campaign that bleeds into every aspect of life, the family life, education, business it's not like the vaccine of old where you get it, you forget, you forget that you even had it, you move on with life. Here we've fetishized it and vaccine becomes the end in and of itself. And we move down the, the, the age chain uh, uh, to, to toddlers and, and babies. Fair enough. There's reason for hesitancy there. But what I'm most concerned about is the mania that's launched with the next campaign around the bend and, and the next campaign, the next campaign. And then we make vaccination the center of life, COVID the center of life while the country crumbles around us because there are about six or seven Mm -hmm. national systems crises in the country.
0: Yeah, and I'll get to that in in the other crises in just a second. But as you know, Irvin, this issue has become very, very political, much in part thanks to the prime minister who used this as a weaponization during the election uh, to score political points. Uh, So it's a very political and divisive issue. To even question it gets you labeled with. I mean, I, I will get 20 emails after this segment um, talking about how irresponsible I am to question anything and just do what you're told. I mean, that's the kind of climate we are uh, living in. Instead of saying, okay, what, what is the data telling us? What is what is the actual need here? Is it smarter to put these vaccines into children who aren't presenting or get them into older people like those at the nursing homes who really are the, the at most threat?
2: I think that's a, that's a very reasonable debate. It's a debate we would have had in 2019 when we were sane as a country. In the context of mania. <laughs> What I find is missing is 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 um, the balance of energies. So facts don't matter as much. Reason doesn't matter. It's an energy that uh, suggests that the balance of, of power is on the side of the dogma of vaccination and vaccination as an end in and of itself rather than vaccination to get us back to pre-pandemic normal or a reasonable sense of normal. I'm for the normal, mm-hmm. but it requires real thinking. And it requires us to understand, again, in 2019 terms, that vaccination is just one tool amongst many to get us out of the pandemic. It's not a tool for everybody. Even those who are vaccinated still can obviously contract, uh, transmit, and get ill. And there will be vaccine-resistant mutations. I'm sure we'll get to that around the bend. Everybody understands that. So the reasonable approach in the end is to protect the vulnerable and everyone else get going as we should have when we saw the profile of the, of the virus early on. And yet we're stuck in this loop that suggests we're not using it as a means to an end. It is the end. Amare usque ad mare mm. usque ad vaccinare, as I suggested in the piece.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, um, and it's it's a little odd. I mean, I don't know if you heard my opening, but like we, we, we got this new variant and, and like the breathless like hysteria over the last three or four days. I mean, I'm not losing sleep over uh, at night. But I am going to keep an eye on it. But I think this far into it, we should have a grasp on how to roll with the punches of this. But, you know, as you point out, we have a lot of other issues in this country. The uh, historic education crisis that has not reared its ugly uh, head uh, and won't probably for years. Um, The economic and fiscal, uh, you know, volatility. We've got a dangerous national unity issue, widespread institutional collapse, you say, and an ever-growing social crisis. You know, we've got foreign affairs issues. Um, You know, but COVID just people either seem hypnotized by it or, um, you know, we've been kind of beaten into submission of just going along with it. But we do have a lot of other things going on in this country that we also have to focus on while dealing with a pandemic.
2: We have to understand we are in an information space in in North America that with the greatest respect to all our 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 Media class, our political class, is really boils down to to two platforms, Twitter and Facebook. I'm on that. You're on that. Everybody, the Prime Minister is on that. If Twitter and Facebook go mm-hmm. off, Prime Minister has That'd no mechanism to speak to the country. So <laughs>
0: it's that's my dream for 2022 platform. that it blows up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no,
2: and 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 then, and then <laughs> what happened was that in 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 late last year, early this year, I know for a fact because I was dealing with the uh, Facebook senior officials on this, the the, the problem of children out of school. We need to get the message out. And they said at the last minute, Irvin, we want to do this, but we got to move to vaccines. We're doing vaccines, vaccines. And now I realize that if the autocrats of the 20th, 20th century would say, late 20th century would say, give me control of television. I will tell you what the people think and how they speak. It is very much the case in the early 20th century, 21st century, that if the the two social media platforms say we're doing vaccines, whatever the motive, even under panic, then that is what we will all say until we realize uh, better or until they stop. And obviously they're not going to stop, but we need to realize better. And that's where the political correction needs to come. The call for the resignation comes from the fact that our own leaders, scientific and political alike, and administrative, are just proliferating the media. They're just retweeting uh, the message by which they're already easily captured without even realizing it, yeah. without even realizing these other crises that are much, much bigger than COVID.
0: Well, why talk about inflation, economy and all these other things when you can yell, over there, more COVID. Just be distracted. I'm out of time on this. Irvin, always a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Likewise. Thanks, Alex.
0: Irvin students a president of the Institute for 21st Century Questions, and he's got his latest book if you want to read, Canada Must Think for Itself. 10 Thesis for our Country's Survival and Success This Century. So in 2022, my Kreskin senses tell me inflation is going to rule the day it won't be climate change. And look, it's not a hard prediction to make because dollars and cents always rule the day. And yes, COVID will remain part of the conversation, but it is the economy that will be the dominant issue. And uh, despite the Bank of Canada telling us for months that inflation would be temporary, that it was all pandemic-related, and, you know, once we get out of this crisis, we're going to come roaring back, well, they were wrong. We're not going to roar back. No time soon. Anyway, anyway, And there are multiple challenges. We talk about them all the time, whether it's supply chains, uh, the pandemic, labor shortages, energy. What is very clear to me is that those in charge of watching our economy seem to have ignored a lot of smoke where there was fire. And they insisted at one time that COVID would give us deflation. Now they're blaming it for inflation. So we've got a bunch of financial number crunchers who missed all the red flags and are now spinning every which way trying to explain what they can't seem to figure out. So the Prime Minister is going to have to change his talking point on childcare and things like affordable housing as a solution because those things are not immediate. They won't help people right now. And it also does not give us any clarity on if there's anyone in charge with a plan in Ottawa to get us through these navi- uh, choppy uh, waters. Philip Cross is a senior fellow over at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. And prior to that, he was with StatsCan, where he specialized in macroeconomics for 36 years. And he is the writer of this special report on the high cost of living, why inflation isn't transitory and won't be easily contained. Good to have you, Philip.
3: Thanks for having me back,
0: Alex. So you wrote this piece, and we've heard from, you know, the Bank of, of Canada, uh, Governor Tiff Macklin. Over the weekend, I heard from uh, Mr. Palaz, who used to be with the Bank of Canada. They're all kind of flip-flopping on, on what went wrong and where we're headed. So why are we getting such a confusing message on what the numbers are actually telling us?
3: I'm afraid that what it reflects is that economists don't have a working model of inflation. And that might surprise a lot of people. It should unsettle everybody, including (laughs) economists. But um, uh, a deputy governor at the Federal Reserve Board uh, pointed out this problem three or four years ago, and it, it hasn't been fixed, that... Economists don't have a working model of of inflation. We know it has something to do with the money supply. We know there's some broad relationship with the unemployment, uh, also called the Phillips Curve. uh, Mm. Inflation expectations have an impact. But that's not a precise guide. It's not like we can say, well, if the money supply goes up 10%, inflation will go up X percent. Uh, So that's why... Central banks have been wrong in their call that inflation was transitory. They didn't really understand the mechanics under underlying inflation. Unfortunately, when the bank makes a mistake, we all pay.
0: You know, it doesn't bode well when, um, you know, the people were supposed to trust the most. You know, I, I don't. We're, I'm not putting my faith in the prime minister uh, or any politician at this for this matter, you know, to know what they're talking about. They get their talking points and they march them out and, and, and to deliver them. But I do expect that those who, you know, make the big economic decisions for our country, the Bank of Canada, would have a better grasp of this. And so, and that they don't, I think, um, would be troubling to, to many, many Canadians. Because I think what people really need right now, Philip, is some clarity. Like, what am I looking for in 2022 that I can prepare for? What do I need to do? Who do I need to talk to? People just want clarity and they're not getting it. What they're seemingly getting is spin.
3: Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, I have some sympathy for the Bank of Canada in this. I mean, it's, you know, it's easy for me as an economist to say, well, we don't know as much about the economy as we kind of pretend to people. But people come Mm -hmm. to us and they ask for certainty. And when you're in the middle of a really traumatic once in a lifetime experience like the pandemic in 2020, it wouldn't do uh, for the head of the Bank of Canada to say, "Well, we're unch- in our uncharted waters. God knows what's going to happen to us." I mean, they, they're they're there to project an image to to get people to uh, see through this, to behave calmly, and that's probably correct. Where they went wrong was they said in the summer of 2020. I can pinpoint exactly when the bank made the mistake. In, the, in July mm-hmm. 20, they said the problem it's a demand problem and if we fix demand mm-hmm. everything will take care of itself they said there's no problem with supply that's just fine <laughs> but we now yeah. know today that there are big problems with supply uh and gradually you can see in every statement Macklin makes he's he's coming up more and more and saying okay we, we you know this may be more of a problem um but he you know he can't come right out and say well economists just don't understand this very well Um, because, yeah, people will then just stop listening entirely. And uh, the Bank of Canada wants to get its message across. And you can see that they're changing their message now. They're saying, okay, we're behind the ball, uh, but we're going to catch up. And we will – they should be saying more clearly, we will do whatever it takes to fix uh, the economy. Mario Draghi, you know, the head of the European Central Bank, he's the one who coined the phrase, whatever it takes. And that really resonated with people when he said, we're gonna do whatever it takes to keep the Eurozone together. We need a strong statement from central bankers today saying we're gonna do whatever it takes to bring inflation under control and assure people that this isn't gonna be a return to the 1970s. I quite believe that. But I I don't see here central bankers coming right out and saying that because it would be, you know, it would really rattle uh, stock markets and bond markets and. Sure. Uh, I mean, you know, but I I don't want to
0: go back to the '80s. I certainly point. don't want to go back to the '90s, and I wouldn't really like to go back to 2008. Albeit we did fare better, but you know, supply supply chains have been you know a problem for a long time. Uh, that those in charge ignored the warnings, um, you know, of some of the problems. That's on them. Um, but the one thing we do hear all the time, Philip, and certainly in the talking points of politicians, uh, you know, the true government is everyone's going through this. This is a global thing. Um, but that's not exactly accurate. Yes, the globe is dealing with inflation, but you look at U.S. economy. um, It grew, I think the number is 6.7%. Canada's economy hasn't grown at all. It's actually, as Tom and I just talked about in the previous segment, it's being driven by our housing market, which should that slow down. This government's in really, really big trouble, but we should not be running an entire economy on housing.
3: Yep. No, and that's uh, that's a very good point. That Shows what's different about Canada. This we aren't part of a global problem. Our housing market just took off in a way that nobody else's did. I mean that was very unique to Canada. I mean over the last uh, couple of decades, our our house prices have tripled. That's way more mm-hmm. than anybody else. So there was clearly a problem in the housing prices in the housing market as we went through 2020. Then commodity prices started to pick up. Then we started to get problems in the global value chain. Uh, but now this year, you know, we're really having problems with uh, labor shortages. Uh, sure. Just last week, Statistics Canada published uh, that there was over one million vacant jobs in this country. The vacancy rate in Europe is below two percent. It's below what it was before the pandemic. So, yeah, there was something specific that happened in uh, in North America and especially Canada that was quite different than in other countries. And the most obvious is the SERB program. That yes. we, we blew you know people uh people's income rose during a recession that's never happened before
1: mm-hmm.
3: uh, so that obviously introduced distortions into our economy and it was a fantasy to think that all these distortions we introduced to the economy we just talked about housing commodity markets labor markets uh personal incomes deficits The idea that all of this was going to have no lasting impact was, as I say, a fantasy.
0: Yeah. Well, don't let the talking points get in the way of a good story, because that's what we're getting these days is a lot of different stories. So, like, we talk, uh, you know, quite often on this show, Philip, uh, about this. Uh, What are you, you know, what would your message to listeners be of, you know, what they really need to understand about what's coming our way?
3: Well, I think the problem's going to get worse before it goes gets better over uh, over winter. Uh it's going to take some time everybody agrees to sort out these problems in supply chains, but even you know, eventually those will get solved. That's the easy part. The harder yeah. part is going to be unwinding is going to be fixing the labor market, the domestic mm-hmm. part of this supply problem. That's going to be the real sticky p- uh, part. Uh and you know, at the end of the day that's going to be up to uh you know we're going to need some uh, forceful action from uh, from policymakers. I mean, the ultimate solution is uh, Milton Friedman pointed this mm-hmm. out in in the 70s. He he argued that yes, money supply impacts inflation, but there are forces that drive the central banks to expand the money supply, and one of them is unresolved conflicts in society. That we have this huge deficit coming out of the pandemic. Uh, and we have no idea how we're going to pay for it. You know, Some people are saying, oh, we'll just get a few rich people and corporations to pay for it. (laughs) There's not enough money there. That's not going to work. So until we figure out how we're going to pay for this, uh, Milton Friedman was the one who said inflation is taxation without legislation. If you will not foot the bill for this uh, through higher taxes, you will foot the bill through higher prices. And uh, that fundamental conundrum, we aren't even close to beginning to address. Just look what happened during the federal election campaign. We didn't discuss yeah. issues at all. We didn't talk about deficits. We didn't talk about inflation. Well, no, the
0: prime minister was asked very clearly, and he made a quip of verbatim. Uh, You'll have to forgive me if I don't, you know, spend my time focusing on monetary issues. That that in itself should have been a game changer for people saying, "Well, excuse me, what you're a pri- you lead a G seven nation? Come on," but. Nonetheless, uh, you know, I I don't think that was the first time we were warned about this. Um, I'm out of uh, time, Philip, but of course, this is not a topic going away. So we will certainly come and chat with someone who seems to know what they're talking about. So I appreciate that.
3: My pleasure. Thanks. Good talking to you,
0: Alex. There's Philip Cross, of course. Uh, he has written this report. It's on the high cost of living, why inflation isn't transitory and we won't be easily contained. I know how we could pay some of these things down. I don't know. Maybe build some pipelines, get some oil to the United States through Keystone, build a national pipeline, get some oil to market. I don't know. These are just things I think about. Yeah, we have an abundance of things we could make money with other than a housing market. That's not you know, exactly going to be... Uh, A sure thing. But I digress. A lot of news today and a lot of news stateside, um, including a trial, really, which is one for the decade. It's, It's up there in prestige just because of the players involved. And it got underway today. This is a hideous predatorial sex abuse case linked to the world's rich and powerful, um, and where the woman dubbed Jeffrey Epstein's pimp is front and center in this New York room, fighting f- courtroom, who is you know where she's fighting for her life, and on the opening day of her trial, I don't think it should surprise anyone, but Ghislaine Maxwell pleaded not guilty to eight sex trafficking charges. She will face perjury charges uh, at a later date. She's accused of grooming dozens and dozens of underage girls and young women over a 20-year period and then of course delivering them to her pedophile billionaire boyfriend's estates all over the world where he uh, sexually abused them and then uh, was said to have trafficked them out to his rich and powerful buddies. And one of the big questions waiting to be answered, will Maxwell name names of these powerful friends. Brad Hunter is the national crime columnist for the Toronto Sun. He is following this trial. Good to have you, Brad. Hi, Alex.
1: How are you today?
0: Well, you know, it's been one of those days where we get these big cases, and you just know it's like, ugh, you know, you, there, there are very few cases that command kind of an attention like like one like this because there are so many of the world's richest and most famous and most powerful people surrounding this woman, and whether or not they're in her little black book. She's going to deny involvement. She does. Um, but most people will look at her as, you know, uh, You know, if they can't get Epstein, they're going to get her.
1: Oh, I think definitely there's an element that she's a proxy for Jeffrey Epstein. And uh, I have no doubt about that. But, you know, alternatively, also, I don't have any doubt that, that she was part and parcel of what was going on. She managed his estates. She was his paramour. She uh uh you know, and and relied on his largesse to uh come to continue living the uh the lifestyle to which she'd become accustomed to as a young publishing heiress, which of course all ended mm-hmm. in tears when her father bounced off his boat off the Canary Islands.
0: Yeah, yeah, she kind of went from riches to rags, and then she hooked up with Epstein. And that really brought her into this social circle where she knew how to behave. She had the silver spoon, you know, training. And that's really how she infiltrated this world. But with him, you know, whatever he had over her, I mean, she is alleged to have have served it up. Um, And so the opening uh, happened today. Uh, This is a six week trial. It's not known if she's going to testify, but the prosecution, I think, has a strong case. At least four of the um, alleged victims will be taking the stand.
1: Yeah, I mean the the, prost- pro- the prosecution has a uh, a very massive case against her and and quite frankly, I think I uh, wrote last week that uh, you know t- talking to some defense lawyers and whatnot, and you know, it, you know they would not put her on the stand so it's unlikely she'll go on the stand so there you know there'll no no doubt she won't be naming names that's that's the thing and she has said she wouldn't ask for a plea deal and the prosecution has said that's fine with us we're not going to offer you one so (laughs) whether she actually names names but you know as the as the clock ticks down and she may be Looking at spending till she's 94 years old in uh, uh, federal prison, you know, that, you know, uh, that hubris may uh, fade somewhat.
0: Yeah, it, it's strange because, you know, she, she's not going to enjoy prison. I'm surprised she's still alive, to be frank with you. But I mean, the bottom line is um, there are a lot of nervous people in this world right now, world leaders, some of the most uh, wealthy and powerful men who are probably quaking in their boots because she may not name names. Um, uh, and frankly, she, I guess, at some point, could have cut a deal to, you know, empty out her black book and uh, and and give a bigger, you know, case to go after um, others. But nonetheless, the the alleged victims in this case could name names, could they not?
1: Well, yes, they 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 can, and they may very well do that on the stand. I mean, one of the women who's not involved uh, in, in this particular uh, courtroom drama, Virginia Roberts. Uh, mm-hmm. She was one of the first to blow the whistle on Epstein, and she's also been the one who uh, pointed the finger at Prince Andrew. Now, mm-hmm. these, you know, these these men have to be, you know, and maybe there's a few women in there, uh, uh, you know, have to be absolutely, you know, freaking. But because, I mean, even the name I, I mentioned that bill clinton was friends mm-hmm. with epstein uh mm-hmm. in any number of stories and i without you know alluding to any wrongdoing on the former president's part and i hear from his people every single time well you know he denies any wrongdoing and no one said he's done anything wrong and it's like you know yeah okay but on the whole thing too alex is, is that you know as i said often that you know if i'm at a friend's house And he's got a gaggle of 15-year-old half-naked girls running around. My eyebrows are going to be raised pretty seriously about that person's character, if not, you know, going directly inside and calling the cops. You know, I just don't understand what these people could have been
0: thinking. Well, I think I know exactly what they were thinking. It wasn't with the big head. It was just with another kind of head. But, you know, there's a saying... Brad, that you are the company you keep, and I do I tell actually my that all live by that mantra. So,
1: you know, I, I, I tell my kids that. All, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, I tell my kids that all the time. Is that you judge by the company you keep, and and I mean, you know, Prince Andrew doesn't have a stellar track record to begin with in the and those sort of sweepstakes, and you know, he's friends of despots and. Oligarchs and all sorts of nasty people uh, in Eastern Europe that you know common sense would dictate that you know you're you're royal you probably shouldn't be hanging around with these people and and he had deep 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 ties with Epstein as well sure. including Epstein paying off his wife you know constant debt problems. There's ex-wife uh, Fergie's debt problems and whatnot. And, and they, they all just look horrible. And, uh, you know, I, I think that some of this is going to come out, whether it's the focus of the prosecution, I probably can't say. But, I, I mean, I can't see how some of this stuff isn't going to come out. And when it does, it'll be explosive.
0: Yeah. I mean, we already know about Prince Andrew's uh, sweaty pits and his dancing and, and all that stuff and the pictures and that. But while everyone kind of talks about him, they always kind of point to Trump. It is the Bill Clintons. And there are a whole lot of other um, high profile, um, you know, pow- real power um, people um, that that are all Bill Gates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that have been connected to this case. We're going to hear about all of that. And, and the thing about courts is, once it comes through the transcripts, as you know, or it's said in a body of court, it tends to carry more weight than what we see in the in the papers of, well, this is what we heard or this. I mean, it, it does come with gravity. So it kind of might change uh, the trajectory here of what happens afterwards.
1: Well, some people will, will no doubt be, you know, essentially re- their reputations in tatters, regardless of whether whether they're uh, they're you know thrown in the slammer or face any kind of criminal or civil action. You know, it's no you know no doubt that reputations are going to suffer, and it's going to get a good deal worse. I mean, essentially, yeah. you know, Prince Andrew is uh, you know disgraced at this moment, and uh, you know from what. I hear from the firm is that there's no hope of that changing ever.
0: Yeah, and I don't suspect the Queen will ever let him out of the basement, but, you know, he can never travel to, to the United States. He'll probably get arrested on the spot. But the other side of this is, uh, well, some of the uh, alleged victims in the case have said, you know, that they are not happy with this. They feel like it should be going further. More people should be arrested, whatever named. Um, there are all the, the, uh, the other side of this is the civil uh, cases. So this is, I think, just the start. So you get the criminal side, and then after that, if you can't get them criminally, you go after them civilly, like they're trying to do with Andrew right now.
1: Well, yeah, uh, Virginia Roberts is going after Andrew at at the current time, and she claims that she had underage sex with him on three occasions at the behest of uh, Epstein and Maxwell, Um you know that that you know there's there's a lot of money on the table. Not you know not doubting any of these women's stories because I think we've probably seen enough that that you know looks like a duck walks like a duck quacks like a duck. But there is a lot of money at play in here. Money, sure. you know, mind boggling. Uh, yeah, you know, and and you know there there's probably a load of very good lawyers uh, that would be more than help. Uh, willing to help them get out that cash, so it's, yeah, and, and it's just not going to end. It's not going to end anytime, uh, anytime soon. I, you know, <laughs> no,
0: well, you know, Brad, we sit here and say "me too" or "believe her," or whatever. I mean, the bottom line is, there are a lot of uh, powerful men here um, who are going to get away with a lot. Uh, and and why, uh, you know, it's very op- openly known who's accused of what, and that they get a pass all the time is very strange. Uh,
1: well yeah I mean th- that's that's the thing that this went on for as long as it did, and as many people knew or had suspicions about this um you know is just is just mind boggling that you know, but yeah. you know Epstein signed that deal in Florida, you know, the worst deal of any deal ever uh yeah. or, where yeah. you know he got pinched with with a child prostitute and uh got 10 months in jail, which was basically he got to spend the whole day at his home and to continue abusing other girls while he was supposed to be serving jail time. So that you know tells you something about the wall of government and influence and connections that are involved here.
0: Fascinating trial. We'll get a whole lot of coverage. It'll be uh, really interesting to see what we pull out of this. But uh, Brad, good luck with this one. It'll be a tough one to cover too much information almost in this <laughs> almost be, uh, fascinating, almost nonetheless <laughs> it's like you can chain columns a day on it but good luck and we'll chat again appreciate the turn. Thanks Alex,
1: have a great night.
0: You too. That's Brad Hunter who's a national crime columnist for the Toronto Sun. He will be covering this case as it goes through and it will be a 6-week trail and it will be just riveting. These are the cases that are always so so interesting. Sad. Interesting. Thanks for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.